Well, we're starting a new sermon series today. I'm calling the Kingdom of God series. Um, we're basing the sermon series out of Luke chapter 6, verses 20 through 49. Now, you may think that that's a really random uh, passage of Scripture to base a sermon series out of, but actually, this is Luke's version of the Sermon on the Mount, which is in Matthew, Matthew 5 through 7. So Matthew takes three chapters to tell us about Jesus' greatest sermon, and Luke takes 29 verses. We're going to look at Luke's version and also compare it with Matthew's. But tying it back to Easter and back to our Conversations with Jesus series, in our Conversations with Jesus series, essentially what we were doing is we were connecting with Jesus. We were experiencing what it's like to be with Jesus. Now in this Kingdom of God series, we're focusing in on what it looks like to follow this Jesus that we have experienced. And so as Jesus was, was walking on the earth, he was healing, he was meeting with people, having conversations, he was also teaching people, teaching his disciples what life would be like in his kingdom. And in his sermon, the ser- Sermon on the Mount, we're going to have four sermons which focus on the Beatitudes section of the Sermon on the Mount. And then following Luke's outline and, and his gospel in chapter 6, we're going to have four sermons that focus on the other aspects of the sermon that we find in the rest of Matthew chapter 5, 6, and 7. But the Sermon on the Mount is about what life should look like in God's kingdom. It's what the kingdom of God looks like as Jesus envisions what life should be like in the world. A new society, a new way of living according to Jesus. This is Jesus' vision for his kingdom. And every time I read the Sermon on the Mount, I don't know how many times I've read it, I'm extremely familiar with it, but every single time I am blown away by Jesus' words. I mean, there are so many sections where I literally almost have to like stop and push my Bible back, and I'm like, no way, Jesus. That is so counterculture. It's so counterintuitive what Jesus is saying to us in his sermon. And particularly today, what we're going to focus on is no exception to that. Some have called what Jesus talks about here in the kingdom of God an upside-down kingdom, where it's everything that you would expect is not what Jesus is saying about what life is like in his kingdom. Augustine called the Sermon on the Mount a perfect standard for the Christian life. Dietrich Bonhoeffer based his book, The Cost of Discipleship, which some of you may have read, on the exposition of the Sermon on the Mount. Dr. Martin Luther King Jr. spoke much of what he learned from Jesus' greatest sermon. So this sermon has left an indelible imprint on Christianity and on the outworking of faith in the church over the centuries in beautiful ways. So why did I feel compelled to preach on this right now? Well, honestly, it hit me one day as I was, uh, I was talking to my children about what they face in this world. And I was thinking about what it's like for a young person to grow up in America today. Uh, If you were to ask a young person, what is Christianity anyway? What would they say? I mean, Christianity, uh, what we consider to be the teachings of Christ, have been so conflated and so mixed up with culture and politics that I get, I get worried about my own children growing up in this world and not even knowing what Christianity is. <laughs> and I, not just for our kids, I get worried about it for us. I get worried that we might be confused about what, what Jesus really is all about, what Jesus really cares about. 
It can be confusing in this time. The best place to go to get the question answered, what is Christianity all about, is to go to its founder. If you were to go ask, what is this political movement all about, you would go read the platform of that political party. Or if you were to be interested in joining an organization, you would go and read about the the, the statement that they make about their organization. Well, if you want to know what Christianity is all about, you need to go back to Christ. You need to go to Jesus. And there's no better place to understand what Jesus is all about than to look at his greatest sermon. Tim Keller says this. He says, The kingdom of God is named in the first sentence of Luke's version of the Sermon on the Mount. The English word kingdom makes us think of a country, but the Greek word refers not so much to a realm as to a reign, a way of administering and arranging a society of people. Jesus is saying, when you believe in me, you enter into my kingdom, and I will now show you the values of my kingdom as opposed to the kingdom of this world. One thing we need to understand is even the word Christianity is not a word that Jesus used. You may not know that. Jesus didn't talk about Christianity. He talked about the kingdom of God. He talked about the kingdom of heaven. And Jesus meant in his coming to earth and his dying on the cross, being raised from the dead, all those who are redeemed in him would be starting a new society. A new society he called a kingdom that is governed by different values, very different values, countercultural values that stand in contrast with the world. Along the way in the series, we'll ask the question, how different is Jesus' vision for the values of his kingdom from current American Christianity? And you will find that there are massive striking differences between Jesus' vision for his kingdom and what we see in many pockets that claim to be Christian in America today. Jesus would show up in those places, those elements of Christian subculture. I hope not in this church, but maybe. We don't want to be in a church that Jesus would show up in and he would find it unrecognizable. And that's what I fear is true in many aspects of not just in America, but in world Christianity today. What does it look like to get back on track? Well, we need to go back and listen to Jesus and take him seriously and seek to follow him in our real lives. So in this sermon, we're going to start out with the kingdom of God and poverty. The kingdom of God and poverty. First, we're going to look at the world's approach to riches and poverty. Then we're going to look at the reversal that comes in the kingdom. We'll look at how Jesus approaches poverty. And then finally, we'll look at what it, at what it means to put this kingdom reversal into practice in real life. So we're going to look at the world's perspective on riches and poverty, the kingdom reversal, riches and poverty, and what does it look like to follow Jesus, all right? Let me pray for us as we get going. Lord God, I pray exactly what Claire prayed for me. Lord, would you uh, fill me with your spirit today? Lord, I admit, I mean, I sit underneath the, the sovereignty and the authority of your word. And uh, I just admit uh, that there are many aspects of what you are saying here that I still need to personally grow in so much, and not just my understanding, but in my practice, in my real life. I know that we all, we all should feel that way as we approach this topic. So Lord, would you be in this sermon, and would you empower me to speak words that are consistent with what you value in your kingdom? I pray in Jesus' name.
Amen. Well, first of all, the world's approach to poverty and riches. The reason why I picked Luke's account rather than Matthew's is not just because it's shorter, which is also nice uh, to preach through, uh, but because Luke includes a corresponding woe section along with the blessed section. So for everything that is blessed by Jesus, Luke accompanies that blessedness, uh, that beatitude that you read in Matthew with a corresponding woe. So Jesus gives the corollary to the blessing in Luke, but he does, Luke uh, records that and Matthew doesn't. And so what does it mean when Jesus uses this word woe? So woe is not a word we use very often. When Jesus says woe, he is referring to a condition of deep misfortune, suffering, or grief. So right out of the gate, Jesus blows our mind, and he says when he looks out at the rich, the rich, and I'll, I'll explain what that means in a minute, his heart is not filled with compliments, but with concern. Not compliments, but concern. The worldly approach to riches could be described like this. Riches are a good thing. Why? Because riches lead to power and comfort. So why not pursue riches? Poverty, the worldly approach, is a bad thing. And why? It leads to weakness and helplessness. A very important question to answer is, what does Jesus mean here when he uses the word riches? Is he referring to material riches? Is he saying, is Jesus saying that if you have a high net worth, then you are living in a state in his determination of deep consolation or grief? Deep misfortune or grief? The answer is, for each rich person, it depends. It depends what Jesus' perspective is of you. What does it depend on? Well, if a rich person from Jesus' perspective is in a woeful state or not, it depends on what is happening in the heart of that rich person. It depends on what's going on internally under the hood of that rich person's life. You can be a rich person who feels deeply needy for the Lord, or you can be a rich person who, who believes that your riches that you experience in life and the comfort that that buys and the status that gives you, the power that gives you, actually really are your identity, that you actually don't really need God all that much. According to Jesus, having worldly riches, money, power, comfort, success, or anything the world considers valuable, puts you in a heightened state of spiritual danger. A heightened state. It means that if you are someone and you have the, those gifts out there, that you have money, you have power, comfort, that that buys, then you need to live your life on high alert, Jesus would say. And Jesus, throughout the Gospels, he warns the rich young ruler about this. He tells a parable in Luke 16 about the rich man and Lazarus. And the warning is that the rich man, who was, was extremely wealthy and he could purchase the comforts that he enjoyed, the rich man fell into this deceiving trap of believing that the comfort that he experienced in this life and the power that he experienced in this life through his money would, of course, correlate over to the next life. He just made that assumption, and, and that, did not, that did not happen. And he found himself surprised in Luke 16. He was so surprised that he, he went to uh, someone who was very poor in his day that had gone to heaven, this man, Lazarus, who is the only 
person named in any of Jesus' parables, Lazarus, the poor man, he begs Abraham to send Lazarus to go, please warn his brothers and sisters who were also rich that they would not fall into the same condition that he did in the next life. So Jesus warns rich people often. Why does Jesus do that? Why does he keep on warning rich people? Well, it's because Jesus loves rich people. He loves you enough to tell you the dangers that you face. The dangers you face if you believe that your wealth and your power and your comfort really can satisfy the deepest needs of your soul. He warns you because he loves you because that's just not real. That's not true. You cannot be satisfied through that wealth. But yet the world, it is actually much more common for a rich person to actually take that wealth and believe it can satisfy them for the than for them to be wealthy and to understand and come to a point that they would need the Lord. It's, it's more rare, and so Jesus warns the rich. On the, other hand, on the other hand, is Jesus saying that it is a blessing to be materially poor? Well, it depends on what's going on in the heart of the poor person. Because sometimes poverty can lead you to a place of dependence on God that you would not have otherwise found had you been rich. But it should be said that the Bible nowhere says that to be poor itself, materially, is a blessing. It's not a blessing. It's hard. Okay? But that poverty can be a condition that you live in that actually drives you to the Lord. But it's also true that many poor people feel no need for grace. Being poor does not necessarily drive you to dependence on the Lord. It can also drive you to self-sufficiency. It can drive you to, to feel like you don't need God or others, and you can be a rich person who cries out for mercy as well. So how do we put this together here, this first statement Jesus makes? Woe to you who are rich, you have received your consolation. How does that apply here in carry in the suburban triangle? Well, I think we can follow the Apostle Paul's lead in Philippians 3, 7 and following, where he says, and I think this is how Paul applied this in his own life. So Paul was a man of, of pedigree, of power, probably of some measure of wealth. He went to the best school at the time. He had it all. And he said, though, in response to the gospel, he said, whatever was to my profit I now consider as loss for the sake of Christ. What is more, I consider everything as loss compared to the surpassing greatness of knowing Jesus Christ my Lord for whose sake I have lost all things. He says, I consider it all rubbish, which is actually not even a fair translation of that word because it would be a curse word if we actually got it in English. He says, I consider it to be that kind of unworthy that I would put my hope and my identity in that compared to Jesus. That's the comparison. That, that all that I had before, now he says I want to just leverage that. I want to invest it. I want to divest that so that Jesus can be known. So that I can know Jesus and others can know Jesus as well. Here we need to consider the words of Jesus in Revelation 3 to the Laodicean church. Revelation 3, 17 and 18, Jesus says to them, You say, I am rich, 
and have prospered and need nothing, not realizing you are wretched, poor, pitiful, blind, and naked. But then I said Jesus loves the rich, right? The famous verse comes later in Revelation 3.20 where Jesus says, Behold, I stand at the door and knock. If anyone opens the door, I will come in and eat with him and he with me. So, Jesus says, if you will empty yourself, rich people, whatever that is, whatever riches you have, if you will surrender that to me, if you will empty yourself, I will come in and fill you. I will come in and be with you. But only the one who is emptied can be filled. So that is the perspective. Uh, The first point there is the perspective of the world's approach to poverty and riches. Now let's look at what it means to have this kingdom reversal a little bit further. The blessing that comes to the poor. Jesus says, Luke 6, 20, Blessed are you who are poor, for yours is the kingdom of God. Matthew 5, 3 puts it this way, Blessed are the poor in spirit, for yours is the kingdom of heaven. So we talked about what woe means earlier. Now let's understand what it means to be blessed. Uh, What does it mean to be blessed? So blessedness means you have the approval of God. It means that when God looks at you, he smiles on you. So Jesus is saying, I approve of you when you are poor in spirit, Matthew helpfully adds to us. So this Greek word here for poor comes from the Greek verb to crouch or cower like a beggar. Um, It means someone who is not just poor, but is someone who has realized that they are powerless and helpless so that they have come to a point where they cannot depend on themselves. There's another Greek word for poor that's not used here but stands as a helpful contrast. It's a word that means poor, but you're able to help yourself. You still have enough resources, you can kind of pull it together and do it on your own. But Jesus says the kind of poor he is looking for is the first word. It's the word that describes a desperate, helpless beggar. Jesus says, I approve and I bless those who understand that they are this kind of helpless, this kind of desperate. Why does Jesus say that? Well, Dr. Martin Lloyd-Jones says this beatitude comes first because there is no entry to the kingdom of God apart from it. He goes on to say, to put it theologically, there is no greater statement of the doctrine of justification by faith than this beatitude. Blessed are the poor in spirit, for theirs and theirs only is the kingdom of heaven. So it's in line first because if you don't become poor in spirit, If you don't understand that you're helpless, then you can't enter the kingdom of God. And none of the other beatitudes or states of blessedness really pertain. In order to to get into the kingdom, you have to bow low. The gate is low. The entryway is low, and you have to fit in only by bowing down. But let's be careful to understand what poor in spirit does not mean. Okay, there's been a lot of misunderstanding here in the church. Poor in spirit does not mean that you think of yourself as a zero. Jesus doesn't look at you and say that you're worthless, you're you're nothing, you're a zero. That's absolutely not true. He created you in his image. He created you. He loves you. He looks at you with love. At the same time, even though you were created in his image, you are are fallen. You've sinned. You're, You're... The image-bearingness of your life has been greatly marred 
by sin. But you're not a zero. Jesus doesn't look at you as worthless. That is a lie. Poor in spirit also does not mean timid or lacking in courage. You need to distinguish personality from character here, okay? You can be outgoing and even forceful in nature, but have a character that is humble and dependent on the Lord. Conversely, you could be a, a more timid person, a more uh, maybe introverted person, and be very resistant to other people's help and the Lord's help and be extremely prideful. Okay, so, so personality type, your Enneagram type, or your Myers-Briggs score, you can be whatever type you are and be poor in spirit. But you don't have to become someone else. You don't lose your personality. Your personality gets transformed by the gospel as you become humble and poor in spirit. What does poor in spirit mean? Poor in spirit means no matter who you are, no matter how much you have, what your responsibilities might be, what your position that you're in might be, it means that you are humble and dependent upon the Lord. You're humble and dependent upon the Lord. Moses was great in responsibility, but he was called by God the most humble man on the face of the earth. David was the king of Israel, and yet he says to God, who am I that you would come to me? Isaiah was a prophet, and he says in Isaiah 6, Woe is me, I am a man of unclean lips. Peter is one of the twelve, and yet in God's presence he says, Depart from me, Lord, I am a sinful man. Being humble and lowly in heart is consummately typified in Jesus in Philippians 2, 6-11. through 11. Jesus, who was, is equal with God, and was equal with God in all of his fame and glory and power in heaven, did not consider equality with God something to be grasped, but made himself nothing, taking the form of a servant being made in human likeness. It says, And being found in appearance as a man, he humbled himself to death, even death on a cross. And therefore, Jesus is the ultimate picture of what it means to be poor in heart. Being poor in heart is the path of the king. It is the path of the kingdom. It is the only entryway into the kingdom, and it is the attitude and approach of the kingdom. It's not something that you just do. You become poor in spirit, and then you get into the kingdom, and then you can do whatever you want. No, being poor in spirit is the way forward all the way through. And interestingly, when you're poor in spirit, it also changes the way that you view those who are materially poor. Maybe you've experienced this in your own life, but, but as you become poor in spirit and understand just how helpless and dependent you are spiritually, it makes you understand it. It puts you, um, instead of looking upon the poor as being other than, it puts you in the category of the poor. It helps you identify with those who are materially needy. And you now are freed, if you're poor in spirit and you, you trust the Lord, you're freed up to go help and you want to help and invest all that you have to help those who may have material needs. So that's what it means to be poor in spirit. That's the kingdom reversal. Let's talk about what it looks like to put this kingdom reversal into practice. There's three application points here. The first one is, instead of hiding from weakness and helplessness, we need to learn to embrace or lean into it. Okay, I'm going to say it again. Instead of hiding from weakness or helplessness, you need to learn to embrace or lean into it. Now, I'm sure a lot of you are like, wow. Okay. Yeah, it's a, 
When you see a sign of weakness or helplessness, our human tendency is to want to do everything we can to cover that up. Yeah, we play like a political art of deflection game where we're like, what can I do now so that other people don't see the weak areas of my life? Um, how can I put the focus on some of the things that I do well instead of the things that I am weak in? When actually the culture of the kingdom is that we lean into or embrace those weak places in our lives. And actually, uh, one of my favorite verses, 2 Corinthians 12, uh, 9 and 12 speaks to this. It speaks to this counterintuitive gospel pathway where Jesus says to Paul, My grace is sufficient for you, for my power is made perfect in weakness. And then later in verse 12, For when I am weak, then I am strong. We have to learn that our weak places, our areas of of real vulnerability, are those places where God's grace can shine the most beautifully through us. In fact, was it not at the cross in Jesus' greatest moment of weakness that grace was most on display for the world to see? It is as we embrace or own our weaknesses, that true part of who we are, that we become one integrated person. You, yes, you are, you have strengths, you have gifts. You also have weaknesses, areas of deficiency. You need to lean into those because it's in those areas of weakness and deficiency where Christ can shine through you. Sure, he can shine through your gifts as well, but even those gifts, you can't use those in a self-sufficient way as if they really are who you are. Really, you need to be dependent on Christ. So as we learn to be dependent on the Lord, his grace can shine through us. You know, I've had many, many moments in my Christian life where God has been teaching me this message. I'm sure you have too. I think about back in college, this is such a massive paradigm shift for me to take that really now I needed to trust Christ. I needed to, to, to trust him and bend the knee to him and allow him to direct my life. And then as I went over to China and, and I became a missionary, there were so many times I was brought to the end of myself. But there's no place in life uh, where I've been so brought to the point where I understand my fundamental need for the Lord as in marriage and in parenting. Uh, learning to love Olivia, learning to, to raise my children. There have been times when I've just brought utterly to the end of myself. But yet I find that in those moments of my, my weakness and owning up to and really embracing and leaning into my need for the Lord, that his grace shines through me, that I grow and I change. And I believe it's probably that way for you as well. But still for me, even though I know this is true theologically and I've experienced it, in my life, I still, when I'm brought to a place where I, need, I know I need the Lord and I'm really at the end of myself, I still, have, I still feel uncomfortable. I still feel like surely I shouldn't need God this much. Surely there must be a way for me to do this in a different way, but there is no other way. <laughs> this is the way. You depend on the Lord. And so God is gracious to bring us to the end of ourselves over and over again so that we can have Christ shine through us. So first of all, you need to, instead of hiding from weakness, learn to embrace it. Second application is, instead of ignoring the danger of wealth, take Jesus' warning of woe to heart. Instead of ignoring the danger of wealth, take Jesus' warning to heart. You know, what you and I consider to be normal here in Cary or in the suburban triangle isn't normal. 
Um, we live in a, in a place here that is, is, is beautiful. It's amazing. Um, we, when our church will occasionally do demographic studies, kind of researching our community and the nuances of it so that we can minister more effectively. Every time we've done it, we've done it about three times over the last 12 years, Carrie ranks as affluent. Uh, top 1% financially overall in terms of a community in America. So if you're top 1% in America, then you're like top 0.1% globally. We are blessed uh, here in Cary with, with wealth. Now that doesn't mean that you particularly are among the 1%. A lot of you are like, really? That's not how I feel. Uh, so I, I got you. I got you. Um, but I'll say, even, even for me and Olivia, like we have to understand that we do, compared to the world, we, we have a lot. We have a lot. Um, and we need to, to kind of understand that. It's easy to go through life and think this is kind of normal, and, and we need to be careful. You may be struggling to get by each and every month. Uh, no matter where you are on the scale of net worth, riches can be an idol. Either you feel like you already have it and you're grasping to keep it, or you feel like you don't have it, and if you had it, you'd be, you'd be better off. And you could actually then be secure. So a couple of questions, three actually, uh, to diagnose whether wealth is an idol for you right now is to consider these. So where do you run when you feel insecure? Do you go check your account balances? How often do you do that when you feel insecure? Where do you go when you need to find comfort? Do you want to go out and buy something immediately? Is that, is that it for you? Um, maybe you want to work harder. Maybe that's how you channel it. It's not so much buying something. It's, it's working harder so that you get more, so that you feel okay. Uh, if you were to lose most or all of your money, would it change your faith in God? Would it change your faith in God? Christian rapper Shy Lin says this, if you come to Jesus for money, then God's not your God, money is. Jesus is not a means to an end. The gospel is he came to redeem us from sin. So if you feel like riches are an idol for you, what should you do? You should repent. Jesus was clear. Um, you need to be careful because uh, riches can become a replacement. It can become an idol where you actually look to those things, those riches that give you power and comfort and pedigree and all that, education. You can look to those things to give you the same things that you need to be looking to God for. Uh, security, comfort, assurance, trust. Where are you putting your hope? You need to repent. The second thing you need to do is you need to give. You need to give as a habitual practice. Giving is a, an, a gospel anecdote for either greed or fear, whatever is driving you not to give. Giving is the gospel medicine for that, okay? So Olivia and I, and I'm just personally sharing, we have always given at least 10% um, of our money away. And we do that, I want to tell you, for a couple of reasons. One, because it's out of worship. Two, it's because we believe we want to invest our money in the kingdom of God, in the furthering of, of missions and mercy and the church and all that. But three, we give because we 
believe that um, riches can be an entanglement for us. It can be a hindrance for us spiritually. And by giving regularly, it is a way of, of demonstrating to the Lord and to ourselves that our money does not own us. God does. And so I just encourage you, and it's also biblical, to you don't have to give exactly 10%, okay? That's, I don't want you to get hung up on that number. But the point is, God is worthy. And the, the way to respond to that is in worship and the furthering of his kingdom and just for your own soul, the medicine is to give. I heard a sermon once at, at Briarwood where I grew up. Briarwood is a, uh, is a large, wealthy church in the suburbs of Birmingham, Alabama. Um, and a, a black pastor, E.V. Hill, came in. They brought him in. I was about 18, so it must have been a good sermon. And uh, Dr. Hill, over and over again, as black preachers often do, he, he used the art of repetition to make his point. And what he chose to repeat in that sermon was the two words, at ease. He said, you're at ease, Briarwood. You're at ease in the suburbs, Briarwood. You need to be careful, Briarwood. You know what happens to people that are at ease? It can, be a, it can ruin your soul, Briarwood. I remember being like, wow. <laughs> Never heard anybody say that to these people here in this room. Um, but yeah, it's true. We can be at ease. And when you're at ease, when you're at ease and you have everything that you feel like you need, you be, need to be careful to make sure that you're not worshiping the God of money. So that's the second thing. Be careful to take Jesus' words of woe seriously. Make sure you're poor in spirit. And the third thing is, instead of succumbing to the siren call of riches, Resist by keeping a more beautiful song in front of you. So riches are like a siren's call. A siren, um, in Greek mythology, Homer tells us about the journey of Ulysses, who as he's leading his men through a narrow pass, they almost got pulled off course by the voice and the, the song of sirens who were calling out from a nearby rock. In response to this, Ulysses took a tactic he stuffed the ears of his men with wax, and he famously lashed himself to the mast in order to escape. This is one way of dealing with the siren call of riches. You can try to white-knuckle it. You can say, you know what, I'm not going to be pulled off course. And it didn't take, uh, it didn't take Ulysses that long to get through the strait, but for us, that strait that we're passing through lasts years and years. I'm telling you, you can't just white-knuckle the Christian life and be like, I'm not going to be pulled off course. I'm not going to be pulled off course. That's not the way. The way is pictured for us later in Greek mythology by a captain named Jason. His men and the Argonauts approached the same strait. They had heard about the sirens, but Jason took a different tactic. He hired a minstrel. The minstrel's name was Orpheus, and Orpheus sat on the front of the boat during that same strait that his men had to pass through, and she sang a more beautiful song, a more beautiful song that captured the attention and the hearts of his men so that they, without needing to lash themselves to the mast or stuff their ears with wax, they were able to journey on and continue on. 
The captain of our boat is also the minstrel on the boat. It's Jesus. And Jesus sings a song over you. And truly, the grace of God is more beautiful and it is greater. The kingdom of God is greater. It is more real and substantive and true and beautiful than any of the riches that you might want to pursue. That siren call of riches goes out. And the way to counteract that call of the sirens is to listen to the more beautiful gospel music. That God loves you. He has died for you on the cross. All of the sins that might be produced in this cycle of riches and everything, he died for those sins. He died for you to redeem you. And he was raised for you. He sings this song over you. I was raised for you to redeem you, to transform you so that you can become more and more dependent on me so that the grace, my grace, the grace of God can be made manifest in your life. So Jesus casts a vision for an upside-down kingdom here in these verses. The entry to the kingdom, don't miss this, it's only through one door. It's only for the helpless. It's only for the desperate to take. You have to bend low to get through the gate. And then the rest of the Christian life, you learn how to live in that posture of humility how to depend on Christ as he transforms us by his grace. Let's pray. Lord, we're challenged by your words. Lord, we see how we can be pulled off course. We hear the siren call, and Lord, we admit that in many ways, I admit that I can easily pull it off course. Lord, I'm so thankful for the gospel that there's no number of times that I can be pulled off course that you do not come back and sing the song of the gospel over me and over your people. Lord, truly you who are rich beyond measure became poor so that we could be made rich. I pray that we would see the value of your kingdom, that we would see the true riches that you offer to us, and we would be so taken in by the riches of grace that we would consider all is lost like Paul compared to the surpassing greatness of knowing you, my Lord. Lord, so we pray that you would do this great work in us. Help us to embrace this gospel of poverty that leads to blessing. Lord, we need your spirit to impart that to us. So we ask for it in Jesus' name. Amen.